we are going to be talking about strong biblical women for the next few weeks, and it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, people are really excited. I'm really excited. This is the only sermon series that when we announced it, um, I've ever heard people cheer for it. I don't know if you were there on Easter. That has never happened at any church I have ever been a part of. Um, I've just never heard people cheer for a sermon series before. Uh, and that's really fun. It's fun that you all are excited. And um, yeah, I'm excited too. Uh, it occurred to me, though, it would be good to talk about what this series is. Um, this is not a women's series in the sense this is a series for women um, and only women. It's not a series uh, that it tries to define uh, what like the ideal woman is. Um, and if you're here and you are a woman, that's not to say you can't get that out of this. That, that might actually happen. You might go, oh, this is, there are some things here that I would like to see in my character. There's some, some things that God has done or said that I'd like to kind of see happen in my life, which is really cool. Uh, if you're a guy, this might actually um, push you to think about, uh, think more carefully about the kind of women you are interested in dating. Uh, and it likewise, um, if you are married to somebody, it might make you say, man, I really want to encourage my wife because I think she, she has some of these great things. And hopefully it's the kind of thing that leads us to raise children that really have these kinds of qualities, whether they're men or women, which will be really fun. So that's not the point of this series. It's just hopefully that happens. Uh, the point of this series is like a series that we would do on um, kings in the book of Samuel, uh, that we would see their stories, we'd see how God's moved in their lives as men, and we'd go, man, this, this has a lot to say to the church today. Uh, that we would do the same thing uh, with some pretty obscure women, some of them, uh, I, I guarantee you, you haven't heard sermons on all of these people. And it's my hope that we will see the Bible and we'll see um, God move in their stories and, and some of the things that God has said to women and men um, in Scripture and that we'll learn from it. So uh, turn with me to the book of Exodus. We'll be in Exodus 1 today. Exodus 1, and we're starting at verse 8. Um, I love that sound, by the way. I love the sound of Bible pages turning. Just makes me feel good when I hear it. Uh, Exodus 1, chapter 8, or Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. There we go. Now, a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase in the event of war, join our enemies, and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Pithom and Ramses, for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless in imposing tasks on the Israelites and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed on them. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And allowed the boys to live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. And Pharaoh commanded to all his people, Every boy that is born to the Hebrews, you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every girl live. This is the word of the Lord. Do you know how powerful Pharaoh was? Like, do you have any idea? This is uh, Seti the first. 
this is his mummy. We have it. Uh, we have it because he built this as a tomb. Uh, these are people. That should give you an idea of scale. This is one of several buildings. His tomb was about the size of a city block, at least what we've found so far. This is just a tomb. He built other things. Our scripture tells us he built cities, Pithom and Ramses. Those aren't the only cities. This is another one, an aerial view. It's still here 3,000 years later. This is a very popular tourist site in Egypt. That's not all he built. These are some things called the Colossus of Memnon. Those are people. These are 60-foot-tall statues. They are carved from solid stone. Each one weighs about 750 Tons. Tons. They were dragged here. They were dragged. Over a mile, maybe more, from the quarry. 750 tons, solid stone. There are four of them that we, they still exist. And these things were engineered in such a way that when the sunlight hit them in the morning, they would make sounds. They would call across the desert. Just to let people know how wealthy and powerful Pharaoh was. Thanks for that. Do you realize how wealthy and powerful you have to be to build monuments like that? To spend most of your time as a ruler building monuments to let other people know how wealthy and powerful you are. Not governing your people, not fighting wars or increasing your territory. Just building decades-long massive stone monuments to you. Pharaoh was insanely powerful. In terms of landmass, he ruled something like the eastern seaboard of the United States, and the south. He was in charge of most of the civilized people on earth. And he was worshipped as a god. Not because there was a law that said anything about this. Just because people said, man, that guy is like God. We should bow down to him. And he has just been beaten by a couple of girls. Hilarious. The funniest thing in the world, this story. Because Pharaoh has made one very crucial mistake. He has forgotten he has forgotten about the God of Israel. And Shipra and Pua, they are counting on him. They are counting on him. Now, who are these women? We don't know any more than this story. They don't pop up anywhere else in the Bible. Uh, we know that they're midwives. And a guess that most scholars would have is they have influence among the midwives. They're not the only two midwives in all of Egypt. It's pretty big. And so they have some kind of influence over these other people. And other than that, they're pretty much just ordinary women. And one of the subtle, not-so-subtle points that our text makes, um, it names them, and it doesn't name Pharaoh. As if to say, their names will matter for future generations. Pharaoh really isn't that important. And I think that's hard for us to believe a lot of the time, right? That, that God uses ordinary people like you and me doing relatively ordinary things. Right? They just do their job, that's it. Doing relatively ordinary things as best we can, God uses people like us. I think a lot of the time we don't have the kind of the 50,000 foot view of our lives. We don't have that kind of perspective. We're stuck on the ground, kind of in the fog of everyday decisions. And so you look around and you think, well, I've got big decisions, and it's not like God sends me an angel every time I make a choice, right? So I don't know if I buy this house or that house, or what should I buy a house? Or should I marry this person or not? Or do I move or not? Big choices. We just do the best we can a lot of the time. Sometimes God speaks. Sometimes we get really clear directions, but sometimes we're just make, doing the best we can. And even with little choices that we know have big consequences sometimes. Uh, 
do I tell this lie or the truth? Both have consequences right now, and I'm not sure what I should do. It's a little gray in this moment. I, do I hang out with these people or, or not? I, I, how, how am I supposed to be a witness in this moment, by speaking or shutting up? And again, we don't get an angel every single time. Schiffer and Pua in this story do not get God showing up and saying, this is what you do. They do their best. They make the best choice they've got based on who they know God to be. And they hope that God is really moving in this story, that God is on their side, that God is, is going to you know, magnify their normal lives into something extraordinary. And one of the crazy things about the Bible, we believe that God uses ordinary people, that God chooses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And then when people like you and me get our story caught up in God's story, incredible things happen. Amazing things happen. Because God's story, the gospel, changes our lives. But it doesn't just change our lives. It changes the world through us. It's really gotten hold of us. It changes the world through us. And so we find that ordinary people do extraordinary things and can change the face of history, which is what happens in this crazy story, all because Shepherd and Pua are counting on God to do something incredible. And Pharaoh is not. When you look at it on paper, it would be really annoying to Pharaoh to lose to a bunch of pregnant ladies. He's the king of the world versus some babies. I'm pretty sure he can win, right? He's the king of the world versus a couple of Hebrew midwives, and it just doesn't seem to work out. That would drive you nuts, right? Verses 8 and 9, Pharaoh's looking around and deeply racist, right? Sees this migrant problem. There are all these people. They're the wrong race. They speak the wrong language. They've got the wrong God. They've got the wrong culture, and there are more and more of them all the time. Pretty soon, Egypt... It, just, it won't be for the Egyptians anymore. We've got to do something about these people. It's pure paranoia. There's nothing in the text that shows us that the Israelites want to rebel, and yet he's sure, just sure, that these people are going to join their enemies. Sure, they're going to rise up against him at some point or abandon them when they need them. And so he deals with them ruthlessly. That word keeps popping up in Hebrew over and over again. Ruthlessly. He uses the politics and the tactics of terror to oppress, to crush, to destroy the will of these people, and hopefully to kill an awful lot of them Along the way, the goal isn't to get a lot of slaves. The goal is to destroy the Israelites and use them as slaves along the way. So he has them build some of those cities. He has them drag giant rocks across the desert. It's hard for me to believe that that was done by paid laborers. Hard for me to believe. He sets them to all kinds of brick and stone and field work. That's what we hear in our text. And they grow, they grow more numerous. They get stronger. There are more babies. It doesn't make any sense. It actually starts to freak the Egyptians out in verse 12. They were sort of counting on this. Turn, and all of a sudden, it's like you step on a bug and you take your foot away, and now there are two bugs. If you stepped on the bugs and there are four bugs, you're like, i got to stop stepping on these bugs. What is happening? What kind of bugs are these? This is terrifying. That is, that is what's happening in this story. And so Pharaoh tries for a slightly less subtle method. He, he goes to some midwives and he says, here's what I want you to do. Late-term abortions. Kill these babies as they're coming out of the womb. And the moms will just have children that die, and they don't know why. Don't, don't announce this as public policy. I just I want this to happen. And he wants the boys dead, but not the girls. He's not threatened by the daughters, which is a mistake. The daughters cause a lot of problems for Pharaoh in this story. But the Hebrew midwives, they come back to him, and they say, I don't, nothing we do works. They just keep having babies. It's amazing. And then Pharaoh goes with even less subtlety. He just announces to all of Egypt, if you see Hebrew boys, throw them in the river. And our story ends in this really ugly, dark moment. And I did that on purpose. 
Because there are ugly, dark moments in the Bible. There's a lot of evil that the Bible just puts in front of you and says, look, evil is evil. Pharaoh is evil. But if you keep reading this story into chapter 2, you'll see even more women doing even more interesting things. So actually one of the babies that gets thrown into the river ends up at Pharaoh's house and gets adopted by Pharaoh's daughter and gets called Moses. That word in Egyptian means son. Moses in Egyptian means son. Pharaoh ends up calling one of these Hebrew babies his son and raising him and giving him wealth and power. And ultimately that guy is going to lead all these people out of Egypt. No matter how hard Pharaoh tries, he ends up helping the people of Israel. It's like there's somebody else in the story. It's like someone else is doing something, and you can't see him, and you don't hear about any of the things that he's doing, but it's like there's, there's this force opposed to Pharaoh so that no matter how hard the ultimately powerful king of the world tries, he can't get anything done. Shifra and Pua know who that is. Do you? See, we read stories like this, and we experience things like this where we go, man, it's like God's not doing anything in my life. I don't see God doing anything. And when we read the Bible, we go, yeah, sometimes it doesn't look like God's doing stuff. I promise you, he is doing stuff. Like, he is active in this story right now. Just, it might not seem like it at this very moment. I mean, Shifra and Pua, if they were looking around just logically, using their brains, well, things were good, and now we're slaves. Doesn't really look like God's helping us. And the slavery gets worse. Doesn't look like God's helping us. And now Pharaoh's telling us to kill children. Definitely doesn't look like God is helping us. And then there's just this active throwing of... And still they fear God, it says. Still they, they worship the Lord. That's another way to say that. They feared God. They worship the Lord. They trust him. They are aware of some things that occasionally I think you and I forget and something that Pharaoh has absolutely forgotten. That God has acted in the past and that God has made promises about the future. They remember God's story, what God has done in the past, and they trust God's promises and that gives them perspective for their present moment. I'm going to say that again because it's really good. They remember God's story, and they trust God's promises, and that gives them perspective for their present moment. They know that God is the God of the past, the present, and the future, the one who was and is and is to come in the language of Revelation. Pharaoh does not seem to remember this. In verse 8 it says, A Pharaoh came up who didn't know Joseph. Now that verse is a really good reason to sign a lease. Um, it's a really good reason to get things written down. Because no matter how much we trust each other, no matter how much we sort of agree on this, things change, and it's good to get stuff written down. Pharaoh has forgotten something. Maybe because he actually doesn't know about Joseph. Maybe because he is choosing to forget how the people of Israel ended up in Egypt in the first place. But if you've read the end of Genesis, which comes right before this story, there's a guy named Joseph. And in that story, no matter how many bad things happen to him, he seems to end up in a better situation. To the point that he ends up vice president of Egypt, and that wasn't really a job. And he ends up saving them from famine, which is amazing, and he makes them really wealthy in the process. Pharaoh does not seem to remember this. He also doesn't remember that every time stuff like that happened, Joseph would talk about this God that he believed in, who is moving mysteriously behind the scenes. Pharaoh does not remember God's story. Pharaoh, likewise, doesn't seem to be aware of Joseph's great-grandpa, a guy named Abe or Abraham. And God made some promises to Abraham. One in particular. What did God promise Abraham? There you go. Kids. He promised him kids. Babies. Babies and babies and babies and babies. How many? More numerous than the stars. So if you're trying to kill the babies of Abraham, 
How likely are you to succeed if the creator God of the universe has promised him more children? Inexplicably, the more they try to kill children, the more babies there are. There's no stopping the God of Israel. Pharaoh can't remember what God has done in the past. He does not trust in God's promises. And a lot of the time, you and I were really good at living in the past. And thinking about our glory days, when we were in high school and when life was good and things a long time ago, when I was in college and that girl that I was dating, when things were better for me financially and my life just made more sense and, and things hadn't gotten quite so screwed up. Some people are really good at living in the past when it's bad. Having trouble forgetting these people or this is what ruined my life and that's just, the, it's over because of this. Some folks are really good at living in the future. The next lottery ticket, the next job, the next relationship, the next house, the next whatever. This is going to solve my problem. And some folks are so good at living in the present and ignore both the past and the future that everything good feels really good, and the moment it's bad, it's really bad, and they're sort of just swept along by whatever happens to them in a given day. We need greater perspective for our lives. We need to be aware of God operating in our stories. There's a guy named Peter Enns who wrote a commentary on the book of Exodus, and he says this, Yahweh is the Lord of history. That's a fact, He is not any less the Lord of history in times of trouble, nor do good times suggest temporary control over events. He is steady and sure, and the Israelites are to see their prolonged enslavement in light of God's character, rather than to make conclusions about God's presence or absence on the basis of circumstances. For some, the very fate of the country depends on whether the right people are elected into office. The spiritual character of our country, if there is such a thing, seems to be determined more by the character of the new Pharaoh we elect rather than the character of the ever-present God, by whose command rulers rise and fall. It is maintaining this big picture that is the the mark of the mature Christian life. We doubt and we struggle, but we trust God. Things are not the way they ought to be, but we rest in God's promises. We doubt and we struggle, but we trust God. Things are not the way they ought to be, but we rest in God's promises. Shifra and Pua are counting on that. They're hanging on to that. Now, I have friends a lot of the time um, who struggle with the idea of of God and some of the the presence of evil and suffering in the world, and I get that. That makes sense to me. Uh, But I also have friends in other places. Um, And some of my friends in Africa, uh, when we talk about things like that, they say, man, life is so easy in America that when you guys see us struggle, you wonder if there is a God. And we over here, when we struggle, that's the only thing that keeps us going. Our solid, secure faith that there must be a God who is moving despite what's going on in my present moment. We remember what he's done in the past. We trust God's promises, and that's, that's what keeps us going. That's what keeps Shifra and Pua going, even when Pharaoh has this crazy demand. When the king of the world comes to you and says, I want you to kill children, what do you do? What do you do? And they make the move that they make, which I really like, but I, just, I wonder why Pharaoh thinks that they will listen to him. Uh, And these are my guesses. One, he's Pharaoh. So he's worshipped as a god and basically all-powerful. And nobody says no to him. And these are just a couple of girls. So, you know, they'll listen to me. Two, if he's willing to kill children, what will he do to people who disobey him? Mother Teresa, just a paraphraser, says, "If, if we live in a society where children can't trust their mothers, or we can't trust society, to protect children, what hope is there for people like you and me? 
And the uncomfortable thing about this particular passage of Scripture, it gets really close to something that we're all very sensitive about and very aware of in our culture. So I'm just going to name it, and I'm going to try to say some things very directly. And I'm happy to chat with anyone who would like to chat with me later. Um, so let me just say this. Um, abortion is a really painful, difficult, and sensitive topic, especially for people who've had abortions or for people who love people who've had abortions. So I'm going to say this as clearly as I can without looking at anybody in the face. God loves you. If you have had an abortion, God loves you. God's grace can overcome even that. God is capable of forgiving even that, restoring, redeeming, transforming, even that. That's how good God's grace is. This is something the church does not say loudly enough. I'm saying that straight out. Full stop, you need to hear that God loves you or that God loves the people that you love. Okay. Now, for those of us who think about this more abstractly, so not the people I just talked to, but for the rest of us who think of this as a political issue, this is a political issue in our time. And we in the church are okay at disagreeing with one another. It's okay to be in a church together with people who are pro-life and pro-choice. We can be in the same church. That may annoy you. I'm okay with annoying you. We are okay with being in the same church. We're okay with being in community with people who disagree on things. And we want to disagree well. Now, I want to say this. If you are pro-choice and if you are pro-life, at some level in the church, we have to agree that the act of abortion is a bad thing. The act is a bad thing. The choice may need to be legal. The choice may be necessary at times. But the act is a bad thing. We don't want more of those. We want less of those. That's something I think we can say of the church, and I think that's something we can see in this story. Now, there are ways to accomplish that. There are lots of different ways, and public policy is not always the best venue. So again, depending on where you're at politically, we're just talking about the act itself. It is a sad thing that happens in this story. A sad thing that happens in the story. And the church has always been for life in the sense of loving children. I, we reached out to a, a church historian friend this week, and he sent us an email back. He was talking about um, the early church and this common Roman practice um, of exposing children, leaving them out, exposed to the elements, if you didn't want them. Um, this was done, he said, um, this is the email, uh, when a child was born with a deformity, or, I'm sorry to say, if the child were female. I ran across this quotation from a letter that a Roman soldier wrote to his wife regarding a child about to be born. They already had a little boy. The soldier wrote, I am still in Alexandria. I beg and plead with you to take care of our little child. As soon as we receive wages, I will send them to you. In the meantime, if you give birth, if it's a boy, let it live. If it's a girl, expose it. Many historians have recorded that it was common practice to have a special place where children who were not wanted could be taken and abandoned. I'm happy to tell you that Christians and Jews, not wanting babies to die, would often go to those places and take the babies and raise them as orphans. See, one of the things I think that kills the church's credibility in our time is it's often vocally anti-abortion, but never pro some of the systems that help young, poor moms live with new babies. Never pro some of the systems that take care of children without parents. The early church had skin in the game. You don't want that baby? I will take that baby. That will be my baby. Skin in the game. Shifra and Pua have skin in the game. It will cost them their lives. And still, still, they want to love children. This is where the church has to be, in a place where we love moms, we love children, we love people in the midst of this conversation. We have to love well, and we are not always good at loving well. 
Schiffer and Pua are good at it, and I think they're good at it because they trust this God that we talk about. And they come to Pharaoh with this kind of crazy lie when you think about it. I mean, it, if he pushes on it even a little bit, I feel like it would fall apart. Well, the Hebrew women, they're just, man, they can have babies, let me tell you. And it, it's sort of a racist thing that they do, but they can tell Pharaoh is kind of a racist, and maybe he'll go along with it. And bizarrely, I mean, maybe it has enough truth to it that, that he buys into this situation. And I'll tell you, my cousin, a couple of weeks ago, uh, his wife had been pregnant for like nine months, and, uh, yeah. and she went into labor, yeah. and uh, there's their second baby, and so she didn't want to wake him up. It's like one in the morning, and so she's, you know, just timing contractions and seeing if it's real, kind of hanging out, reading a book, and all of a sudden, she's in the bathroom, and it hits, and she's on the ground, and it's full labor, and it's terrible, and she can't get up, and she's lying in front of the door, and she can't, like, crawl out of the bathroom, and so she's yelling for my cousin across the house, and he is asleep. And just asleep. And she's yelling, and he is asleep. And it's 10, 20 minutes, and he wakes up, and he's kind of groggy. And he comes and finds his wife, and he's trying to figure this out. And she's too, in too much pain, and so he picks her up, and he carries her down the stairs. And they, they get to the car, and she can't sit in the front seat because it's just too bad. She's in full blow. She's having a baby. And so the only way that she can be in the car is in the back seat of their minivan. She's sort of between the seats kneeling like this and just holding onto the console and just like having contractions and miserable. And so he's driving like a maniac down the road and is like, we need, this is a hospital right there. We should go there. And she's like, no, I want to go to my doctor. And he's like, no, we need to go to the hospital. But a woman in labor is very difficult to argue with. And so she's in the back and he's like, all right, we're going to drive the next like 20 minutes to the hospital. He's flying down the freeway. They pull off. We're almost there. They pull into the cul-de-sac. We're almost there. He's pulling up to the hospital. We're almost there. He pulls in the overhang. We made it. He pulls into the park and he hears a baby crying. <laughs> and he turns around. And this is actually a really good position in which to have a baby. And the baby's fine. And he runs inside and he's yelling and people are running outside. They had the baby before the doctors, the midwives. They just, it's happened already. This this is a believable lie that these people tell. A believable lie that these people tell. And Pharaoh goes, man, what is it about these Hebrew women? They just, they keep having babies. See, there's this strange thing that Pharaoh experiences that has been experienced throughout the history of the church. When God is for you, no one can be against you. Paul says this in Romans. If God is for us, who can be against us? And dictators and tyrants throughout history have found that killing Christians seems to produce more Christians. One of the early saints of the church says the blood of the martyrs is like seeds. You just you spill that on the ground and boom, there's all these people who start coming to know Jesus. St. Augustine liked to say that wisdom is such, true wisdom is such, that you can never really use it for evil. It always ends up working its way back in a different direction. See, what these women find, what Pharaoh finds, is that you cannot stop the God who is moving in the background of this story. And you and I, in our lives, might be dealing with all sorts of things. It might be faced with really complicated decisions. It might be trying to figure out how to love some of the people in our lives who we don't really know how to love. Or it might be dealing with some real suffering and some real struggling. And all I can tell you is this. Shifra and Pua have really good reasons not to trust God, and they do anyway. Really good reasons not to trust God, and they do anyway. And in trusting that God is in control, they find that God is in control. That he demonstrates this beyond doubt in the story. And what we see by the end of Exodus is that these strong biblical women, as they trust the God of the universe, are able to do some really extraordinary things. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you. Um, We thank you and we praise you.
for the gift of life in children. And we pray, God. We pray that we would be a community that learns how to love well in the world. That doesn't try to, to legislate things that we believe in nearly so much as we try to come alongside people. And we talk about this God that we have trusted through hard times and good times. God, I pray that we would remember your story and that we would trust your promises. That it would give us perspective for the present moment. Because we believe that you're in control. In the name of Jesus, amen.